0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we have the absolute pleasure of welcoming a true pioneer to the show, Dr. Stephen Porges. Dr. Porges is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina, and professor emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. In 1994, he proposed the polyvagal theory a theory that links the evolution of the mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes the importance of physiological states in the expression of behavioral problems and psychiatric disorders. He's published more than 300 peer-reviewed papers across a wide array of disciplines. He's also the author of The Polyvagal Theory, Neurophysiological Foundations of Emotions, Attachment, Communication, and Self-Regulation, The Pocket Guide to the Polyvagal Theory, and co-editor of clinical applications of the polyvagal theory. So Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. Thank you, Forrest. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you for taking the time to do this. And many of our listeners are probably familiar on some level with polyvagal theory, or they have kind of a general idea that maybe it has something to do with the nervous system or how our bodies deal with different levels of stress. But uh, it's not tremendously often that we get to kind of ask for an explanation from somebody who proposed a major (laughs) theory in the first place. So I'd love to begin with a kind of summary overview of polyvagal theory kind of straight from the
1: source. Sure, sure. But this, you know, what I often say, this is the question that I like the least, because (laughs) it's unbounded. It could could take hours or days. Then
0: hopefully we will do it the quickest.
1: Well, the quick answer (laughs) is actually the literally evolved answer, which is what I've learned Uh, what is of interest to clinicians and to people in general about the polyvagal theory. And it can simply be summarized as saying that it shifts our own personal documentary from uh, events to feelings. Mm. So it's really saying that our life and the way we develop our narrative and relate to the world is based upon our physiological feelings, we call them feelings, but they're really based upon really global physiological states. And in a more scientific perspective. Uh, our physiological state, and this is really meaning autonomic state, is the intervening variable. That means it's between the stimulus input, our context, and our responses. And based upon the physiological state we're in, the same stimulus will give us different responses. So we can't, we live in a world which is always talking about events. So even when we talk about trauma, people look for adverse events, ACEs. Now, ACEs are important, but we know that events that don't reach the threshold of being viewed as traumatic can trigger in people physiological and behavioral changes that are very similar to someone who's been severely abused or traumatized. And yet other people can experience really adverse situations and they have this tremendous amount of resilience. So we have psychological constructs that can now be replaced with underlying neurophysiological circuits. So resilience is really saying that my autonomic nervous system responds and stays really in a range of homeostatic function, meaning that it supports my health growth and restoration. And I don't really switch into a threat reaction where I'm trying to protect my body from everything going around us. And of course, we all know people that if you say a word or something in the wrong intonation, or look away from a person, their physiological state will instantaneously change in front of you, and they can go even into states of rage. So it just shows you that the threshold to be negative or the threshold to be reactive is not constant. And therapies can really be targeted at using the underlying physiological state as the target of therapy, in a sense, enabling individuals to have a toolkit regulate their physiology and their feelings. Mm,
0: That's great. And before we started talking, you actually gave an example from your own experience of the ways in which a change in physiological state could kind of change your level of personal activation. Would you kind of mind sharing that here?
1: Well, I'll I'll be very pleased to share it. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening will relate to it. I twisted my back and had some severe muscle tear or, or sprain and It's not a uh, imaging was fine or end organs are good, but uh, it's excruciating pain and it's episodic. And the issue is that physiological state not only affects how you behave in the world, it affects the people that you're behaving with. So I realized rapidly that I couldn't, my wife could not be behind me. My body would brace and if the body braced, Which we do when people walk behind us. Sometimes we're not aware of it, but that bracing create more muscle spasms, which meant excruciating pain. So I had, in a sense, teacher to be in my view in the front, you know. And I had to say, "Look, I, I, you know, I love you. I love your intentions, but my body is reacting to threat." And often people don't quite understand that. They think that our behavior is always a product of intention. And what I'm really saying is that my physiological state, which was chronic pain, and chronic pain is really the metaphor, or let's say the archetypical pattern of reacting to threat. You know, your body is telling you something's not right and it's trying to protect you, it's trying to do good things. But if someone walks behind you, your body will react when you are in that state. So,
2: Steve, one of the contributions that you've made is to ground loosely associated ideas in psychology and, and in clinical practice in evolutionary neurobiology. And, you know, there are obviously some simplifications, you know, when we try to talk about applications here. But one of the really useful things that I think you've offered is giving people a language in terms of the the early branch of the vagus nerve complex and its involvement with certain kinds of regulation, regulation, and then the more recent branch of the vagus nerve complex that's, that's more involved with social engagement. And I wonder if you could just sort of give us a little quick summary of those two branches and how they also relate to the sympathetic branch of the nervous system, which gives us almost like three forces inside us that are, that are balancing with each other. Yeah,
1: but the balance is really being choreographed yeah. or regulated by the newest circuit, the mammalian, Uh, ventral vagal circuit in that system evolved. It's uniquely mammalian. So it's a system that the control of that part of the vagus, which is going to your heart, that is linked in the brainstem to the the regulation of the nerves that control the muscles of the face and head. So we are conveying our physiological state in our voice, expressing it in our face and our nervous system, because. Uh, those uh, nerves and muscles in the face and hand create a social engagement system is how we make contact with others. And even when we listen, when we listen to prosodic voices, our nervous system calms down. It's a trigger to the nervous system. And when we say it calms down or calm down, you know, if the therapist will talk in those, you know, uh, more melodic voices, those are cues of safety which are functionally vagal nerve stimulators mm. so there's almost we come into this world with a a quest to be safe with, you know because survival is safe and mammals are co-regulators and this is an important concept of polyvagal theory but co-regulation requires the fact that i am conveying to you cues of safety and you are reciprocating cues of safety back to me whether we call it mirroring or we call it attunement or shared moments. It's it's a physiological reciprocity in real time synchronously. And that's what creates relationships. But we live in a culture and this is not, you know, you didn't design it, I didn't design it. We came through it. And that culture says it's not how I say things, it's what I say. And as an academic, think about the world of academics. Uh, where people don't make eye contact, don't look at each other, and they think it's all in the, in the, in the syntactic expression and not in the body cues and the body cues about how we want to learn, how we want to engage people changes. But let me go back and simplify your real question. So there are three, three evolutionary stages in vertebrates, a ancient vagal circuit. Uh, that literally shuts us down if it's recruited in defense. But when it's not recruited in defense, in the ancient vertebrates, it's supported homeostatic function. We still have parts of that in our body, and it can help us in our homeostatic functions when it's not in defense. But when it goes into defense, what it does is we would defecate, and we would stop breathing, and our heart rate would go slower. And then you start seeing... These types of experiences of people who have been traumatized or even preterm babies when they get challenged, they have bradycardias, heart rate slows up and they can't breathe. The next system- Pardon me, would you call that the so-called freeze response? You no, know, the freeze response becomes very nuanced and, and okay. actually, because when most people talk about freeze, there's not loss of motor tone. Yeah, There's loss of mobilization or moving around. But the motor tones there, which means there has to be sympathetic tone. So it's functionally a hybrid between this dorsal vagal, I'm shutting down, and a freezing in space and time. Mm. I I can't move. It's like munch's scream. I nothing comes out, but I'm there. So there's a degree of embodiment that's keeping the body from shutting down. Mm. I now call that a hybrid state. So it's if you've been had a real severe traumatic event and you shut down, passed out, or defecated, you know, you just dissociate totally, you will make certain adjustments when you are in that type of situation later in life or if they become recurrent because the shutting down response is potentially lethal. That although reptiles and more primitive vertebrates don't need to breathe very often, humans do. So the body makes that adjustment and one of those adjustments is dissociative states. Mm. So the, you maintain reasonable autonomic tone, but you're not there. And the other one is the freeze. It keeps the body, in a sense, upright and, and 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 put together. So the interesting part is that, in general, there's a hierarchy of how these systems work. And this. so we have to be very careful about using terms like balance because all systems are not equivalent or equal in their power. So the, the sympathetic nervous system actually inhibits that dorsal vagus. And in the world of trauma, you see many people who have trauma histories, you see them as being highly mobilized people or anxiety. If we threw the word anxiety out and said, well, they're under a state of constant threat and they're constantly moving to protect themselves. That's what anxiety is doing physiologically. We don't need the psychological construct we can build an adaptive narrative of it. But if that mobilization is occurring, that sympathetic drive, it inhibits dorsal vagus. So it has a powerful adaptive function of keeping the individual from falling into the abyss Mm. of shutting down. Now, the interesting part is the newest circuit, the mammalian vagus that is linked to what I call the social engagement system. So you not only have this newer myelinated system, and myelinated fibers work more rapidly. They're more efficient. Uh, but you also have it being linked to the muscles of the face and head. So now you're conveying your state to another. And when we think of a person being attractive or being attracted to a person, what are we saying? You're wearing your heart on your face, mm-hmm. and I like that heart. Mm-hmm. And we talk, even use words like that, you know, heartfelt. And we feel the distance between people just dissolve when the engagement is occurring. So this newer circuit has this really remarkable feature in that it keeps the other parts of the autonomic nervous system doing their jobs. So it's not like the sympathetic is an enemy. The sympathetic nervous system gives us enthusiasm, exuberance. And just think for a moment, well, the difference between play and aggression Play uses the same motoric aspects, and it's metabolically similar, except play has also the social engagement system involved. So people make face-to-face contact, they're cueing to each other. And even when someone gets hurt in play, if the person leans towards them, helps them get off the ground and says, I'm sorry, I hope you're okay, there's no problem. If the person walks away, then, the narrative that is immediately within the physiology is someone's hurt me. I have to protect myself. Hmm. And if you watch dogs play and kittens play, they're always maintaining face to face contact because they're sending cues that this is play. So play has that face to face with movement. But the ventral vagal circuit can kind of coordinate the sympathetic and mobilize to keep it in, in a play model, but also. It can coordinate the dorsal vagus, so we can be immobile, like a mother and a baby conforming to each other or two lovers, and have shared moments of intimacy where people don't have to look at each other, uh, a whisper or a voice or communication, and the bodies conform and all the defenses are gone.
2: Steve, just a very small nomenclature question. Would you mind for people in general, just uh, clarifying what is meant by the terms dorsal and ventral?
1: So the, the dorsal is really means that it's more towards the back in the brainstem. Mm. It's the original part of the brainstem where the vagus uh, evolved initially. And during our own embryology, some of the cells from that area migrate ventrally to the area that controls vocalizations, facial expression, and the, uh, the muscles of the face and head. And that becomes the ventral vagal complex, which includes more than the vagus, it includes the nerves are the the cells of origin for the nerves that regulate the facial muscles
2: these are more toward
1: the front thus ventral yeah and it, so it it's people like with you know people use terms now so people say going ventral going dorsal it, you know these are metaphors but the metaphor has a neurophysiology and the neurophysiology has an adaptive function and the adaptive function is that all things are good in certain situations It's when they get recruited in defense, especially prolonged defense, you have problems. And the interesting part of how the autonomic nervous system works is that we evolved to exquisitely move between fight flight and social behavior. And we do this in play because we use the social behavior to contain those mobilizations. But our nervous system did not evolve very efficient mechanisms of getting out of shutdown responses. It's like, this is a very old circuit, and when it gets triggered, best be careful. And that's why people in the trauma world, you know, have been working for decades. And the interesting story that I'm beginning to, uh, I would say, be privileged to see being written is that the most effective therapies have a somatic component Mm -hmm. in in the world of trauma. we I create this traumatic stress research consortium, uh, where I have uh, engaged tra- trauma therapists to learn about what they do and what they think is most effective, and also about their trauma histories. And then they are going to recruit people. But the first five hundred, we we got a profile of what they think is most beneficial and what's frequently used. So let's say so the somatic ones are always to the right, meaning more beneficial, CBT is frequently used but not viewed as effective with trauma. So it's uh, kind of an interesting dialogue going on. And the other part is seldom is a person, a unique therapist with one trainee. On average, each therapist had eight specialties or eight trainings. So there's not like there's a somatic experiencing or internal family systems person. They could be having multiple ones. Mm. And I even stuck the term in polyvagal informed therapies and they're, they're, you know, Deb Dana's developing one, but it's not really a branded uh, Mm -hmm. therapy. And that was, you know, high prevalence and also high effectiveness. So in a sense, the principles of polyvagal theory are viewed by the therapist as being helpful in the treatment of their clients.
0: Yeah, that's really wonderful, Steve. thank you for that overview of that territory. We actually I had I felt like pleasure... I was getting a master class. Yeah. It was great yeah actually. For sure. It was, it was really awesome. Good. It was a wonderful summary. And um we actually had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Peter Levine on the podcast. Um and I know that he's like a longtime friend and <laughs> yeah. colleague of yours. Um and so I wanna because you just took us there, I would love to spend a moment talking about trauma and responses to trauma when I myself have kind of read some of what people have written about polyvagal and the intersection with trauma and the dissociation experience, which some people will connect to that shutdown experience that people have either in clinical settings or when you hear people talk about the traumatic experience that they've had in the past, how you can feel that dissociation come in from the uh, narrative component where people will talk around something or they'll talk about it, but not about how it made them feel or whatever it might be. You just alluded to various forms of somatic intervention which have been shown to be very effective here. So whether it's in like a clinical context working with somebody or just for people who are struggling with the remnants of that shutdown response, how can people move out of that um, and try to distance themselves from that uh, experience of immobilization?
1: Uh, Okay, first of all, I'm not a therapist. I always have to put that up front. It doesn't mean that I don't have insights in which therapists can use but it also doesn't mean that I haven't learned from therapist's experiences. So for me, the fact that polyvagal theory resonated not only with therapists, but with their clients and the emails that I get are like, you explained my life, you explained my experiences. So we start understanding one thing is that if we have a narrative that makes sense, it helps us heal ourselves. So the issue, again, we live in a medical world, and the medical world doesn't attribute healing to the individual. It attributes healing to the drug or to the surgery, to the implementation of a procedure. And it doesn't really recruit uh, the client uh, or the patient as a collaborator on this journey. And I had the opportunity to interview for an administrative position about Maybe it was fifteen years ago at the NIH, and I had this meeting with the director of the NIH, and I said, "We know too much about medicine now, too much about the body, to allow medicine to be practiced the way it is. Our job should be to recruit the patient's nervous system as a collaborator on a journey of healing, hmm.
2: and as the inner doctor he,
1: in a way, the inner physician. Yeah, yeah. yeah, basically, it's if I understand, I can. It's not going to be." Uh, uh, chaotic in my mind, I'll have a path, I'll have a program to reach health, and I'll learn along the way. And of course, he, the, he had no idea what I was talking about. And so my personal journey is to really be about understanding what other people can understand and what they can't. And you can't really convey certain ideas to people if they are locked into certain models, because the, it's too... Th- It's threatening. So a disruption of predictability is a violation of, basically, it's a violation of predictability is danger and threat to people. And we can just think about that in everyday life. And whether we talk about individuals who have obsessive behaviors or autistic individuals, their nervous systems are really posed to react to threat and having an idea of what comes next is actually very powerful to help them build the program. And we can talk really today about like with the pandemic. The devastating effect of the pandemic is not the virus. It's the uncertainty of, the, because of the mixed messaging, we don't know what to do because we're not given a path to healing, a path to safety. And this is really what's devastating. And the, of course the impact in the world of therapy is that everyone is reacting in a state of threat within their quarantine or or whatever units they're in. And so there's a lot of problems that we don't really know at the moment, but we'll know uh, during the next pandemic, which is the impact on children and family units that have been self-quarantined. We
0: all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe's Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms, without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging directly with their proprietary os one peptide. The os one peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their os one face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent
2: you. So Steve, I'm so glad you went there. And uh, Forrest and I are are both have been wanting to talk with you about this. So, you know, it, it strikes me that in some ways as a, as a psychologist, a therapist, that the pandemic is a perfect storm. So we have um, a contaminant that can make us very sick, and those we love, and we're very vulnerable to fears of contamination. Arguably one of the earliest emotions is neural hardware evolved was uh, discussed, as you well know. So contamination, and second, it's invisible. And third, the effects are delayed in many ways, and so it's cognitively challenging. And fourth, there, in, in many quarters, is a sense of being uh, let down by uh, our leaders who are just not taking care of things for us. So it's, and, and then there's a lot of division as well. So it, I was wondering uh, what your sense is of how this current moment zaps us
1: <laughs> in terms of polyvagal theory. I. I... Don't even think you hit the real issue on, on the head. The real issue is public health strategy is a threat to us, so social distancing. Okay, that
2: too. Throw that, on,
1: throw that in the mix, number five. Remember, because we are co-regulators, we are a connected species, and we don't have, and how has, the, how has how have humans, through their own evolutionary history, mitigated their rage and their anger and the destabilization? through co-regulation. So we took away the tool that people have to regulate. So we have, so the the way that I describe it, and I wrote a paper on this, it's in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry, and that is, it's, it's a paradoxical challenge to our nervous system. So we have a threat, and our body's going to shift physiological state because there's a prevalent threat. We can't touch it, we can't mitigate it, we can't control it really, other than isolation. But isolation in itself is another threat to our nervous system because it's our major pathway of of regulating our state. So in this paper, I suggest that there's one thing we can do and that is what we're doing right this moment, we're video conferencing now. We are living in a time when this unique tool is available it's not the same as sitting down having a drink or a cup of coffee, but it's not that bad. We can look at each other's faces. We can see facial expressivity. Uh, but the problem is that we've spent generations now, or decades, learning not to attend to two dimensional screens. So we learn to trivialize the information. And I, I recall uh, what my father said to me, and this is a, a very personal story, but it's like, our, my father put together a TV from a kit, actually <laughs> assembled it in 1949 I was a little kid. and I made a crystal together.
2: radio when I was in the Boy Scouts, vastly simpler than
1: what your dad pulled off. <laughs> he pulled off. He actually got all the parts in it. And I remember the antenna was in the living room. Huh. And what he said to me was, this will change people's habits they'll start talking when other people are talking they'll start to see it as not really being another person so the issue was he was really saying that when we look at two-dimensional screens we're going to look at them for entertainment or education and we're not going to attend to it and now of course zoom meetings are everything everyone's living on zoom and a lot of therapies are being done on zoom and some people like therapy, receiving it on Zoom because they feel they have the attention of the therapist. Some therapists like it and some say it's too exhausting because they can't disengage and, you know, go back and forth. So the issue is how are we using it?
2: So Steve, if I could push on it, kind of simplistically. So first, I, I want to reassert that I think it's a perfect storm with many elements, including the fifth element of, you know, the ways in which it's, it's painful. Forrest moved out. Forrest lived with us for quite a while. He moved out two months ago. I haven't hugged my son for um, months now, and it really is bugging me. And it's it's anti-mammalian, you know? <laughs> I can take refuge in my inner lizard, but there's more to us than that. So I'm, I'm with you on this fifth factor. But I guess what I wanted to get at is I wonder if you could look at how people broadly are responding to the pandemic in maybe problematic ways that uh, involve some combination of shutting down or freezing, let's say, and or, Excessive sympathetic nervous system activation, restlessness, you know, activity, pleasure seeking for the sake of pleasure seeking, whatnot. Can you talk about that? And then, alternately, how people might be responding or could respond to the current situation, drawing more on ventral vagal approaches and, and the social engagement system.
1: Well, I think we have a society that always liked movement, activity, acquisition and didn't do well with stillness. So I think during this pandemic, there's a lot of people who have trauma histories, who are, let's say, high achievers, high movement people, people who used activity to keep themselves from shutting down, didn't use high quality co-regulation with another, didn't really trust another or even trust themselves.
2: Vulnerabilities developed, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I have this other, test, and it's the continuum from accessibility, from accessibility to vulnerability. And so accessibility is arms open like this, and vulnerability is you're closing like this. Now, what we can see is where are we during the pandemic? We're in the vulnerability one. So what's that tell us uh, about our physiological state? We are detecting threat when threat may not be there. So, in the sense someone moving around us or someone not wearing a mask or someone doing this, our bodies may get triggered because but our narrative is the dangerous part of the story. Our narrative is always going to justify our behavior.
2: Wow, that's really interesting. I want to really underline
1: that. Well, so I use this term called neuroception. Yeah. And that is this detection of risk outside of awareness. Now that shifts our physiological state. If we're detecting risk, we're changing our thresholds to be reactive. We are not aware of the, of the actual elements that trigger that, but we are really aware of our bodily state changes. So you don't wear a mask, and I get this visceral response. I then make a narrative of why I'm really upset. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that narrative, with my physiological state as my motivator or engine creates the violence and reactivity. So being, quote, worked up is really where the danger occurs. And the real part is that as a society, we have not taught uh, ourselves and others the, the toolkits that we could have available to calm our bodies down, meaning breath, chanting, even socially interacting, or playing musical instruments, or, or just being quiet, listening to music. In a sense, have this appreciation of honoring those bodily feelings before we go into judgment about what we should do about them. So if you're anxious, if you're reactive, honor it, listen to it, feel it. Don't make argue that you know why you feel bad and you have to do something. It's In a sense, be embodied. And even if that embodiment is, a, is really a ag- feeling of agitation, take it for what it's worth. It's like the severe pain or episodic pain that I've been in. It, it's, it's an experience, and I'm learning about my body. I'm not angry at anyone for having the pain. I'm not angry at, at the physicians. I'm not angry at anything. It's an experience. It's not an experience that I really want to welcome, but it's an experience that I have to live through.
0: Yeah, so Steve, it, it sounds like you're you're talking about to an extent uh, creating space between the physiological experience that you're having and the story you create about it. Is that more or less accurate?
1: For us, I think that's very good. I see it's like stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> stop because what you see in situations and I've observed this is absolutely no time. So you can never be aware of your own bodily feelings or reactions because Mm. you've already made the attribution, it's you, it's not what I'm doing. And even if I'm doing it, I didn't mean to do it, that's different. Uh, So like I was trying to explain to Sue that I can be highly reactive because of the state I'm in, it's not my intention to be that way and it's not her intention to trigger me. That's just the physiology of the situation. And that's this narrative or dance between narratives that people have to develop and understand. So you're absolutely right. Get some space between the feelings and the actions.
0: That might bleed over into this next question, which kind of plays off of that. But uh, as you were saying, we have a lack of social engagement on many levels due to the pandemic. Many people are trapped at home. They're stuck in close environments. But What that means is that you're often trapped in home with other people and you are around those people all the time. And that could be wonderful or that could be extremely challenging. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak to how we can keep the social engagement system healthy when you're with that other person.
1: Well, let's first of all say that a lot of people are in close proximity with others who are toxic to them. Yes, yeah. And we, we haven't really acknowledged that. We'd say that, well, you love that person, but remember how many families, uh, I mean, we, we know already from the from the literature, uh, from the childhood trauma questionnaires, on, on normative data, we know that 25% plus have had severe trauma in their home environments. So now we're in placing vulnerable people in the care of people who are potentially abusive and potentially more abusive because they're under states of threat, their tolerance, their flexibility is reduced. So the issue is how do you get people, what is, what's a toolkit you can give people, Hi, right, Forrest?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: This is where I kind of lean on my colleagues. I mean, I start dealing with this by some experientials of what it was to breathe in different ways. So I would uh, take, if you exhale slowly and inhale more rapidly, you start seeing people in front of you as being more benevolent or more loving or more interesting, whatever terminology you wanna use. But if you reverse it and inhale slowly and exhale rapidly, you see people as being critical of you. So this was the experiential that I I did. I had people sit across from each other. This is what I do in my workshops. And I don't tell them anything, but I wanna know what their their observations or self-observations are. And the classic one was, When I inhaled slowly and exhaled rapidly, I saw the other person's face that they were critical of me. Did I do something wrong? I kept Mm -hmm. thinking, maybe I'm not following the instructions right. But then when I reversed that, I said, oh, what an attractive person. I'd like to get to know that person. (laughs) But I had to be informed there was something else going on, that as the person was doing the breathing, the person observing, their faces were changing as well because you you had the softening, especially the upper part of the face with the slow exhalation. So something as simple as breathing a few times with longer inspirations and uh, with short inspirations and long expirations work. I also had a colleague friend who had a great fear of public speaking. And this is actually a really interesting story. So the night before, Uh, the conference, we're having a party, and she says, and she was going to introduce me the next morning, and she said, she said, Steve, I'm really frightened about uh, introducing you. I said, don't worry, don't worry about that, I'll fix it. And that was the end of that night, and next morning, 10 minutes to nine, she says, okay, Steve, fix it. And I watched her as she was talking, and she was basically gasping on every word. And I said to her, just extend the duration of your phrases, meaning exhale slower. And at first, she couldn't get two words. And then then it just was like a switch clicked. Mm. And she calmed down and did a beautiful introduction. And now she uses it as a treatment for people who have public speaking issues. But it was all based on the principle of slow exhalations will shift your autonomic state to this ventral vagal dominance, the social engagement system. So you'll appear to be more accessible and less vulnerable and you will feel better.
2: Just a detail for myself um, as a public speaker and by nature a kind of shy and initially socially awkward person with probably tendencies toward anxiety in my own case. I found that uh, I started doing this little trick before I went on stage or even the first few moments when I'm on stage and I'm shuffling my notes, let's say at the lectern, to look at the people in the audience and Mm -hmm. slow it down and get a feeling of the suffering in their faces. And Mm -hmm. I just mean that very loosely, like you can see it in my face, weariness, fatigue, worry about others, Mm -hmm. whatnot. And as soon as I started focusing on this, their suffering, it immediately mobilized my social engagement system, I'm sure, uh, which then calmed my heart rate and had all yeah. kinds of wonderful visceral effects. Uh, and then I, I was no longer over here with me, and I was over there with them to be as helpful as I could, and, which then, of course, in a circular, funny kind of way, would help me do as good a job as possible.
1: Right. You were a co-regulator. They were feeding back on you. That's part of the problem with doing webinars, that uh, if you have to just talk to a screen, and I did this last week, it it doesn't have the same type of feedback. And I have another another story that is exactly like yours. I was giving a talk, it's actually floating on YouTube somewhere, for uh, uh, Compassion Care from Jim Doty's group. And it was in Telluride, uh, Colorado. And I was giving my talk, and suddenly they turned the house lights out. And I said, I can't talk. Got to turn them back on. Uh, so it was, <laughs> it was exactly your point. They And I found it really this kind of paradoxical situation. You're at a meeting on compassion, and they took the ability to co-regulate off. It is
2: interesting just to underline it, though. Um, like Mike's ex- experience of fellow feeling, common humanity, and also compassion, let's say for the people in the audience, and and not trying to uh, mind read them or be at all superior, just fellow feeling like, oh, we're all in the the yuck boat together. That was entirely internal to me. Now, and I I doubt that people's faces were changing out there in the Mm -hmm. audience, even though I, for the first 10, 20 seconds or so, was doing that internally. It's possible. But also it makes me think about uh, the ways in which people can do deliberate practices that are more internal and meditative of the cultivation Mm -hmm. of compassion or loving kindness. And in the process of that themselves, feel calmer, more regulated, more resilient as a result too, even without the circular process of feedback Mm -hmm. from those for whom they're having loving
1: kindness. We are a connected species. Yeah. And that's really what you're saying. Yeah. And, uh, and even in our connects, imagination
2: is what I'm yes, emphasizing. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: That that visualization is powerful. Yeah. because it helps us stay, you know, we use the metaphor grounded or embodied, but it helps us regulate. Um but I was going to really say one other thing is that you may be underestimating what you're doing when you engage people on the stage. Yeah that you may have this very powerful effect on them where they are changing state with you and, and developing that connectedness.
2: Oh, definitely. With the lights on, in effect, yeah.
1: Yes. So I had the, the example is that I was giving a talk in London a few years ago. I'm in the lobby after a talk and a woman in the wheelchair rolls up very fast, focused on me, looks me directly in the eyes and said, you didn't say hello to me and i said oh well very sorry have we met and she said no but i've seen you on youtube so <laughs> it, it, it's it's the point that 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 there was this familiarity and and i'm sure you you based on who you are are doing the same thing people feel connected to you yeah. even though you don't you don't know their names and often not their faces but they will look at you and they will feel comfortable.
2: I know of you. I mean, I I came to read your work, gosh, maybe 20 plus years ago, and I was just staggered by the erudition in it, the brilliance, the thoroughness, the audacity, the courage. I think courage is an underrated virtue in in academia and all the rest of that. And and so your work is, we could say, academic, but your vibe is therapeutic. (laughs) It's therapeutic just to hang out with you. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, for real. And I just kind of wanted to ask you a question we ask just about everybody.
0: If you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself as a child or a young adult, sort of whenever it was most meaningful for you, what would you want to say to that person?
1: So I actually have reflected on that, so thank you, Mm. it's a good question. And I would have told the young me to be more patient because it all would, it all would unfold. However, the impatience served, served me well. So mm-hmm. when you talk about being audacious, it was really boldness. I, I, I did shy away from conflict or trying to do something different. However, I never thought that what I was doing was anything more than the next obvious step. So even the polyvagal theory, I didn't see it as a paradigm shift. I saw it as derivative and the next obvious step. And when you start seeing, I actually wrote a chapter on that just recently uh, to try to put it within the historical context of where did it drop. It really dropped in a world where everything was about arousal, arousal theory. And it was a very simple linear model of thinking about uh, too much arousal was bad, too little was bad. It was an inverted shape curve. And it was a misunderstanding of the underlying neural mechanisms, and not in a sense respecting or honoring what those systems evolved to do. Yeah. The, the bottom line was that it I had to be literally informed by the clinical community that what I was doing was special and unique and had transformative value for humanity. And I realized that what I've been doing over the last uh, since the theory initially came out in 1995 was really expanding the theory and developing toolkits to uh, both measure the impact, validate it, and also different applications. And I sit back at this stage, and you know, we're, we're a mature, mature adult at this point, and saying... <laughs> I don't know if Forrest would agree, but
2: maybe, but yeah.
1: Well, mature, maybe an adult. <laughs> uh, so, So what I would say is we sit back with a sense of gratitude that we could have our ideas, and we could create our own science to study our ideas. And we could create from that science products that are helpful to humanity. And when when I sit back on that level, it's just a tremendous feeling of humility Mm. and gratitude. And when you come out of academic traditions, humility and gratitude aren't part of the formula (laughs) because it's totally different. So. What I often will say is that I leveraged my academic success to do something worthwhile. When I hit about 50 years of age, I looked around and was asking this uh, internalized personal question, that is, who are the models that were able to transition out of academics and feel successful? And I couldn't find any. They all felt that they didn't get their due. They were bitter or that people had forgotten them. And I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand why they didn't think that they had this wonderful opportunity, and they retreated well, and what did they really want? Now it was time for younger people to come in. They shouldn't just try to control the world and keep fighting for... I mean, it was really simple. Laboratory space, grant money. I mean, it's very, very capitalistic uh, viewpoint, and they weren't even thinking about nurturing the young. It's really, they were more reptilian than they were mammalian. (laughs) And so I looked at this and I said, this is not me. I can't do that. And so I I set basically a bucket list. And a bucket list was the minimum things I needed to get done to feel that if I did nothing else, I would feel okay. And the model really was more about archiving ideas and work rather than truly doing it. So the there were three things, I can only remember two at the moment, but one was to have an archive of the writings, and that was really the first Norton book, and the other one was to publish in peer review the acoustic intervention that I developed, and the interesting things for me that was that after these things were done, and I was no longer in a sense contained within the university, then the acoustic intervention got commercialized and patented and they affected actually now tens of thousands of families have been impacted by it and people are discovering and i'm learning about what it can actually do and
2: that maybe is a good place to wrap it up here with the feeling in my own body maybe you too forest as well i'm just being in your presence steve and feeling a kind of relaxation and fellowship
1: Thank you. Well, thank you, Rick. And yes, it is a fellowship. You know, it's like, it, it's like a team. Uh, we don't always get to see each other, but we are crossing paths sometimes in, re, in physical reality, but very frequently uh, in the digital world because we're on the same mission. And so I really appreciate seeing you as part of our extended family. So thank you, Rick.
0: Thank you so much for doing this today, Steve. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Forrest. Good to meet you.
0: So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Porges. We began with a summary of the polyvagal theory, including its three major components. These are an unmyelinated dorsal vagal complex. That's the oldest and most primitive system. It's connected to an experience of immobilization, what sometimes people refer to as shutdown during a trauma response. Then there's the sympathetic nervous system, This is linked to mobilization, it inhibits the visceral vagus, and it creates a fight-or-flight response. The sympathetic nervous system is also recruited during the freeze response, and during sometimes experiences of play, or anger, or other kind of motivating experiences that have to do with movement. Then, finally, there's a myelinated ventral vagal complex, and this is linked to communication. It's also linked to the cranial nerves that control our expression and our vocalization, which are big parts of social engagement. One of the important things to remember about these three systems is that they're all adaptive. They exist to serve evolutionary purposes, like conserving resources in the case of the dorsal vagal system, mobilizing us in order to obtain resources, or flee predators in the case of the sympathetic nervous system, and for purposes of building social connection and signaling others with minimal energy expenditure in the case of the ventral vagal complex. So none of these systems is inherently good or bad, but in modern life, we generally experience the dorsal vagal and sympathetic systems as having potentially more problems attached to them than the ventral vagal system. Uh, Steve then talked for a little while about shutdown and the trauma response and how that connects to the dorsal vagal system. He also offered some recommendations for how we can manage those traumatic experiences. Uh, One of the things that he really touched on throughout the conversation was the importance of calm, building in some space, and even taking a little bit more time while we're talking. Finding opportunities to connect somatically with ourselves which is one of the things that breathing often gives us, can be a great way to move through a painful experience and move toward that more ventral vagal system of social connection and engagement. Rick and Steve then talked for a while about the unique challenges of this moment and the burdens that COVID is placing on the social engagement system. We're getting less social engagement generally, or we're just getting it through a screen, But then, on the other hand, many people are stuck, effectively trapped, with very problematic people, even toxic people. And being around those people wholly is just causing them more harm. And Steve offered a few additional suggestions of what we can do practically inside of these problematic environments. So, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Steve Porges. If you've been enjoying Being Well, I'd like to remind you once more about our new Patreon account. You can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast to support the show and receive a variety of awesome benefits in return. Also, if you've been liking listening, if you could take the time to subscribe to us through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, we'd really appreciate it. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening to Being Well.